following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. It's my great pleasure today to have Kyle Martino as my guest. Kyle was a tremendous soccer player from high school through college, through Major League Soccer, also played internationally. Uh, Most of you know and have enjoyed him as the color analyst for NBC Sports coverage of soccer. Uh, Kyle currently is on unpaid leave as he is a candidate to become president of United States Soccer. Uh, Kyle, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, and thank you for, for that that lead and I just had flashbacks to the fact that I actually used to be a player. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about those days. No, no, that's okay. I, I you know what? I played some soccer too, though what I played was probably more akin to kickball uh, <laughs> up through college. And uh, as bad as I was, I still have flashbacks too. You know, and, and what's funny is over time, I've become better and better. You know, and, and, and probably in another ten or fifteen years, uh, if my memory is still together, I will probably be as good as you were, maybe even better. <laughs> so. I'd say probably better. You have, grow, you have to make sure you can grow your hair long, though, because that, that, that was the only aspect of my game that I that I got any compliments about. No, no, I, I had the long hair, too, you know, because I, I went to Siena, and so we're talking uh, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, the hair was probably the only thing I had going for me that uh, had people think that I resembled a uh, good soccer player. You know, I was, it was yep. kind of like back to the days of, when my dad took me to Giant Stadium, when uh, I think George Best was playing for the L.A. Aztecs. Aztecs. In, in the, yeah, in, in he was old... one of my favorite players. Unbelievable, unbelievable yeah. player. And uh, as that was near the very end of his career, of course. And um, I remember I, this guy could dribble like crazy, and he had oh. long hair. And I was like, you know, that's going to be me one day. I'm going to have that long hair, too. You know, I, I had the long hair, the, but none of the skill. You skills. got the hair part. You got the hair part, too. Exactly. You know, there's a great George Best tribute video up. Yeah, I've seen it. He, he was a phenomenal player. He's uh, uh, ab- absolutely uh, incredible. I'm glad I got to see him. I got to see Pele, too. Uh, Stop rubbing it in, okay? <laughs> so, okay, so from my, my side of the street here, uh, where at Forbes we get into the economics of sports, yeah. and we've been valuing uh, – Major League Soccer teams and, and looking at uh, how the sport's been doing here and then following both the uh, men's and, and women's teams in, in the Olympics and in international competition. The upshot is things look like they've been trending up. Looks like a pretty rosy picture. I and mean, we've got Major League Soccer teams selling for north of $100 million. You know, who would have ever thought that, you know, five years ago? Um, the growth in the sport seems to be strong, um, and all signs seem to be pointing up. Yet, 
you seem to think that the strategy that the sport is undertaking is is missing the mark. Am, am I describing that accurately? Yeah, definitely. And, and and it's good that we can get into the numbers. Um, you know, I, I don't know uh, if if enough people know this, and I know very few do. When I when I retired, I had a career-ending injury, and in 2008, I stepped away from the game at uh, 28 years old. Um, and I immediately started working in finance. I was really upset with the way my career ended. I never achieved my ultimate goal of playing in a World Cup, and felt um, you know felt really upset and sad that the, that the game. Uh, was taken away from me at a young age because of injury, and so I got into the world of finance, and I was always interested in economics and markets, and I was not responsible for the financial crash, but I, but I was there front and center, and I got to watch the whole thing unfold. And there's kind of interesting similarities uh, to the fact that we're at a historic low point right now in our soccer history when you look at the men failing to qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. Now, you just mentioned a lot of numbers that can be used to demonstrate progress, but you have to be really clear what progress we're talking about and then also kind of dissect these numbers. Uh, soccer is a product, and U.S. soccer is a business, and so is Major League Soccer. And what I worry about is that there are artificial ways to, to demonstrate or, or create the optics of progress. And, it, and, it, and it, I, I liken it to you know, CEOs that do stock buybacks instead of spending money on R&D. So, yeah, you're going you're gonna to raise the stock price, but if you really get in and, and analysts do this, you, you can see that the valuation isn't propped up on uh, future returns based on strength of product. So um, a lot of the mechanisms, whether it be attendance based on spikes with expansion uh, that kind of trick you into thinking that, that attendance is way up, or, uh, or, or revenue coming in with expansion – uh, you have to look further, and when you and when you look further and you get under the hood, the, the, the numbers that you said, you know, say two hundred million dollar buy-in, right, for a new expansion team to just kind of ballpark it. Uh, that that's not new revenue. What, what that is is that that's a buy-in to an exclusive uh, single entity setup, and it's a way for for uh, current owners to not have their investment diluted by letting another investor into the pool without raising the revenue. So. One of, the, one of the issues with that is I, I, it does assuage owners' concerns, of course, for market entry, but also they do get a, a, a small check, and, and I say small. I mean, it, it could be in the sort of 5 to $10 million range that ends up hitting their books that feels good. But, but in the long term, that, that's an annuity that gets shut off when you hit the, the magic number of how many markets you want to grow into and, and what is the revenue stream or the idea after that. Um, the valuation of these clubs is, is, is only really propped up by the model that they've created where the risk is mitigated because you can't drop down into lower leagues like the way the rest of the world runs it. Um, you understand why they set it up this way and why Major League Soccer created a marketing arm called Soccer United Marketing and combined it with U.S. Soccer to, to leverage a bundle rights package. And it was a really, really smart idea. It's an idea that has, that has uh, brought a lot of capital into the coffers to be reinvested back into the game. So before you get into the creative accounting, this was a really good strategy, which has contributed to growing interest in the game, growing uh, attendance in stadiums, and growing markets. One big problem, though, is the indicator that the product's improving is ratings, and ratings are, are, are pretty plateaued if you look across the life 
um, of the league. So uh, the the increase in markets and, and the other clubs that are coming in dilute the talent pool, which affects the product on the field. And when you compare it, you know, say a club that has a a, a $40 million a year, and that's being generous, uh, operating budget for player salaries, and, and you know, it's much closer to, to 10 or 12 for some of these teams. Uh, and you compare that to a team in England that has a $250 million a year operating budget for its salaries, it's impossible to keep up with that product race and make sure we have a commensurate product with theirs. Um, so a lot of these numbers are, are, are positives, but I think sometimes they're used to distract us from the fact that we are getting it wrong uh, by, by thinking that you can grow a soccer culture in this country with trickle-down economics and spending a lot of money at the top of the pyramid, investing in professional league, investing in national team, uh, and hoping that gets down to the consumers that are going to want to see your product, want to play the game. So, so you know, we can talk about tech, technical aspect of the game on the field, and most of my interviews are about that, but I'm glad that we're talking about this because, um, you know, when I look at the budgets and I comb through everything and I look at revenue, yeah, revenue for, for U.S. soccer uh, is growing. I mean, if you look at 2016 numbers, it was around, I think, $140, $150 million uh, in revenue, which in a six-year period was double, uh, was um, you know, was, was, I mean, really in a six-year period was, was almost tripled. So revenue has been increasing through partly an, a natural inertia and an interest in the number one sport in the world. Uh, and then part of that mechanisms that, that were creative, that were good ones to use. But, but if you look at sponsorship, right, television, licensing, royalties, in that same period, um, you know, the percentage of revenue is, is still relatively the same in that category. Um, you know, they, they haven't really been able to, to grow that vertical quickly because ratings aren't increasing, which, which helps you bring in the most amount of investment. I mean, that's why the Premier League is a monster, because their, their rights deals globally get them billions of dollars. Um, so, you know, all of these things are important to talk to, only if we're being honest about what, what's, what's the aim, why, why are we using certain numbers to demonstrate certain things, and, and are they actually cause and effect. And breaking away to say thank you to Amica Insurance, Veridesk, and Rocket Mortgage for their support of our show, Forbes Sports Money. More about those companies later in the show. I want to back up a little bit because you said something that is uh, very interesting uh, and, and can be kind of technical, um, but I'm confident you can explain it in a, in a way that even I can understand. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to sometimes articulate it when you get, dig into the economics of Major League Soccer. But could you touch on a little bit, please, uh, the what the setup is in terms of the relationship between Major League Soccer and then some, uh, its, its marketing entity, and, and, and how the two sort of work together in terms of uh, other uh, tournaments outside of MLS uh, and, and how important they are, the setup is of the two being distinguished, uh, separated in terms of uh, driving MLS values uh, and, and, and underpinning a lot of the sale prices we, we see in teams. I believe it was Providence Equity within yeah. the past year sold their stake in some. Back to the MLS owners. Back to the MLS owners. And, uh, 
uh, if memory serves me correctly, they sold it back at a, at a pretty sizable profit. And, and uh, you know, how those numbers are used to uh, buttress the financial, the, at least the headline success of the league, but it, but it could be a little misleading. Yeah, so um, this is a hard one because, and, and that's why it's central to this to this election. Um, and you'll see a theme across all candidates that there is a desire for more transparency. So the reason it's hard to answer your question definitively is we've never been given the answers. We we are not operating in a way that helps that relationship be known to the constituents and stakeholders and the and the opacity of that um it, it is cre- it's created a serious problem because when you have byzantine structures that 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 make it difficult to explain relationships uh questions are asked and at a minimum the brand suffers become because of a perceived conflict of interest so i'll try to unpack unpack it as best i can w- w- without without digressing into um you know, speculation and rumor. So um, the reason some was created, and this isn't my opinion, this is what one of the, one of the creators and founders told me, it was created um, to, to, first and foremost, deliver the World Cup, the, the, the biggest sports tournament in the world, um, in, in the English language uh, broadcast to this country. So, so to be able to create um, a, a, a marketing arm that could acquire rights to the biggest tournament in the world and, and, and put it in everyone's living room in English. So that's the, the, a simple explanation of the genesis of creating some. The, the, other, the other reason some was created and founded by, uh, and again, this is, this is hard to understand and know because there's, there's no document out there that definitively tells you how this happened, but um, Sunil Gladi and Don Garber and, and a few others were part of this creation uh, because it made a lot of sense. What they were going to do is, because MLS was a struggling new league, still trying to gain momentum, and was in jeopardy of actually folding and becoming insolvent, uh, they bundled the relationship between U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer, and then created a marketing arm that could negotiate rights deals by bundling that package. A very, very smart idea an idea that's integral to the growth of the game in this country. But what we have to figure out is uh, where's the line of demarcation where it started to become diminishing returns based on the fact that the aligned interest initially between U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer may no longer exist where what's good for one is not good for the other. And when you have a board member uh, like Don Garber and Sunil Gulati who, who are so close with and, and, and helped found Soccer United Marketing, uh, and Don Garber's bosses are the MLS owners, and they own Soccer United Marketing. Uh, when, when there are people like this that are involved in all three entities, a nonprofit and two profit organizations, uh, immediately there's a conflict of interest um, that, that, that it's kind of it's troubling that they don't see when the membership is asking for them to help clarify why it isn't. And so if it isn't, it's in their best interest to help us understand why the sum relationship is still such a good one for U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer um, that it's never been bid out. Because since its creation, there's never been a, an open bid to IMG or other entities get a, get a chance to deliver that service as a third party to, uh, to Major League Soccer and U.S. soccer. Now, this contract currently that they have expires in, I think, 2022. 
So we'll, we'll, we'll see if that eventually happens. But, but in the interim, no one has given any, no one has given any of us a, a, a clear understanding and idea of what are the, the, what are the deal points with that contract. Um, wh- why is it not a conflict of interest to have all of these entities overlapping? Uh, and, and in that sort of economic Venn diagram, what are the overlaps? And, and what are the benefits? What are the costs? And, and why is this better than doing it transparent or maybe even absorbing altogether a marketing arm for U.S. soccer or fully putting it outside of the Venn diagram and having it be a separate third party? So these are all questions we need answers to. And I, I think the growing discontent and speculation is, is actually uh, the blame falls at, at, at U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer, and some for, for not helping everyone understand what this relationship is and how it's evolved. Um, and that's what everyone's asking for. So I, I, the other day, made a headline by making a suggestion based on high knowledge from people that have been in these rooms on where this is actually harming U.S. soccer currently. And I lent my credibility to that, to that discussion. Um, and, and if they come forward and, and can prove that the, that the, the worries that we have are unfounded, it, it, it might be a blow to my credibility, but the benefit for everyone is, is finally an explanation and transparency. So I'm, I'm willing to cash in some of my credibility if I'm wrong. The reason I, I, I was bold enough to say it publicly, um, something that, by the way, has been, has been, uh, has been suggested, suggested and, and thrown out several times, but not by someone with enough credibility to get an actual response from U.S. soccer like I did, uh, we just we need to understand the economics of it, and, and it's easy to do that. Um, but but for some reason they they haven't been willing to show us the books. So let's say the World Cup's played in the United States, and Soccer United marketing handles you know the broadcasting rights and the li- and the licensing rights for the World Cup. What I've always wondered was, okay, so the World Cup brings in a lot of revenue. That revenue then gets parked at Soccer United Marketing, does it then flow from Soccer United Marketing to the Major League Soccer teams? Um, in other words, the, the economic benefits, you know, I've always viewed some uh, in, in an overly simplistic way as sort of the Bernie Ecclestone of soccer. You know, Bernie with F1 for decades was, was a genius at uh, maximizing the licensing and marketing rights for F1. Uh, and you know, that's kind of like what I view Sum's role at. Uh, am, I, am I correct about that? And am I also correct that the issue is we're not really sure where the revenue flows brought in by Sum? Uh, not just we know how they're generated by, by having the right to uh, sell those TV deals, for example, and licensing deals. But we don't know, number one, uh, is it done at an arm's length transaction? In other words, what does... Uh, some pay Major League Soccer for that. Where does the money go? I mean, th- that seems like an important issue that I don't know that we've gotten to the bottom of yet. We definitely haven't gotten to the bottom of it. Um, and, you know, it would be a shame if failing to qualify for a World Cup is the only thing that can help us get there. But, you know, if it does, then, then we, we, we have a phoenix from, a flame, from the flames moment of capitalizing on a, on a, on a really – uh, catastrophic low point to to finally get answers to questions that improve the health of our organization. So those are all really, really fair questions without answers. And 
when U.S. soccer thinks that uh, making a statement to say, um, you know, U.S. soccer unilaterally makes decisions for rights and for venues, um, it, you know, what's hard about that is without further transparency and understanding, if, if there are board members or leaders within U.S. soccer that have a financial interest or connection to some, then it's a, then it's a differentiation and a distinction uh, without much difference. Uh, it, it's kind of interchangeable. So that, that's what everyone wants to know is if we're wrong that it is a, a distinction without difference, help us understand what the difference is because – if some, which again, I'll go back. Uh, I give I give so much credit to the founders and the and the the minds behind that decision because it, it absolutely improved the game in this country and has helped us come along. Um, but everyone's worried that that again we've we've reached a diminishing returns moment where where profits are going up, not being reinvested in growing a soccer culture, improving a product. So if we're wrong about that. It really is is on um, Kathy Carter and and Major League Soccer and and U.S. Soccer as people who have seen the books and know these deals to to tell us why we're wrong. And you know, I'm not someone that's I'm not I'm definitely not someone hoping to be right. I'm I'm actually hoping I'm wrong. Um, and and even if that's a blow to again any piece of my credibility, I've built it up over so many years that that. Uh, I am not in jeopardy of, of my credibility going bankrupt, uh, but I was willing to lend it so that we could help get answers to these things because uh, I'm an eternal optimist, and you know, sometimes I ignore the Maya Angelou quote where she says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. I, I'm, I'm still giving benefit of the doubt that there can be a good explanation for us because if the explanation uh, doesn't come in, in terms of, we'll tell you why this agreement is really good, and we'll tell you why we're doing it this way. If that explanation doesn't come, then the, the, the only real situation we can think about and the only conclusion we can make is that there, there is incompetence in some of these decision-making uh, groups because the decisions they're making are, are poor ones without understanding the, the, the uh, mechanics of these deals. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Sports Money podcast and the following message comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policy stay with them. One more time. That's meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. And support for the Forbes Sports Money Podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage you get a transparent, online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. 
Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Some, some represents both the United States Soccer Federation and Major League Soccer. Is that yeah. correct? Okay, so some pays a fee then, which presumably that fee goes to both United States Soccer Federation and Major League Soccer to represent the United States Soccer Federation and MLS in terms of being able to market and sell and uh, television and licensing agreements and so forth. So, yeah, uh, so it's important, it's important to, 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 um, to, to unwrap that a bit. So okay. what you're alluding to, and I know you know this and I know this, and, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do as well, is the reason that you retain a company like that, a third party, like an IMG or like a SUM, the reason you do that to handle your rights deals instead of doing it internally is, is they assume a lot of upfront risk with guarantees. So these companies will, will, will pay guarantees, and then obviously it can escalate, and there are, other, there are other milestones you can hit to improve the fee that you'll get. But the, they basically protect your downside if you bet on a game selling out or, or being big or even being in a tournament like, like the World Cup. Uh, they will be there to underwrite the losses. Um, so that's easy to understand, and that's why a relationship like this is good. But without really understanding what the distribution of these fees are and, and the deal points, it's impossible to know if it's benefiting both U.S. soccer and U.S. soccer equally. Right. That's a great point. All right. So I, one thing I really commend is now I don't know. Uh, I believe there are like eight or nine people interested in uh, succeeding Sunil Gulati's uh, reign. Eight candidates. Eight. Thank you. As uh, president of the United States Soccer Federation and uh, – you, you have written a letter and have pointed out three broad areas you'd like to address. Um, I think the first one, uh, the first pillar, at least that you list as first, is transparency. Yeah. Um, how would you like to address that, Kyle? Well, so we just went through a few ways, but really what needs to happen is um, – Every 501c3, right, all nonprofits have a, a, a conflict of interest policy and uh, ethics audits and all, all of these, these uh, quality control and, and, um, and uh, efficacy mechanisms to make sure that you're running the organization in a healthy, transparent way. Now, we don't have a lot of these things. Um, you know, I haven't been able to get a copy of the conflict of interest policy, but I've been told there's a line in there that excludes affiliates from the, the policy, which, me, which would mean some and other entities. Um, so what I would want to do initially is, and I've met with a conflict of interest uh, uh, lawyer, and I've met with several uh, firms that, that run these audits for, for organizations, and, and U.S. Soccer has hired some of them in the past, but we've never seen the reports. So we, we need reform in terms of the bylaws that run these organizations we we need to we need to make sure and there's easy ways to do it and i have a progress plan that i'm that i'm uh, publishing on uh, january 15th that goes through these reform suggestions we need to make it clear uh, what what is the decision hierarchy what are people's responsibilities and expectations what are their incomes 
uh, every deal that, that U.S. soccer is doing, we need to be able to see the deal points. We need to be able to see uh, the, the, the numbers and the relationship and, and the benefit to U.S. soccer. Uh, we need to change the election process. Right now it's a very clandestine and anonymous process of people not, not having to, to be public with their support of certain individuals. And the election, February 10th, is going to happen in one room, but is going to uh, be anonymous. People will push a button, but no one will know who they're supporting. So th- there are a lot of things that, that ha- have created a, 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 a cloak and a sort of cloud of, of, of anonymity that does not benefit uh, the, the constituents, does not benefit the members of this organization. So uh, U- U.S. soccer members want to know who's supporting who, who is doing what job? How much are they making? And and why are we doing deals with certain people? And I think we owe it to our fans to to disclose all of this information because in a climate of corruption, where in New York City, right down the office from uh, from where some U.S. Soccer and, and MLS are, and by U.S. Soccer I just mean uh, executives. They have an office there, but the real office is in Chicago. But right down right down the street. You know, people are, are being charged, arrested with, with crimes, with, with bribes and, and other things. So at, at a moment where... You're, refu- a, you're referring to their FIFA investigation. Yeah. Right? Okay. So at, at, a, at a moment right now where there's an enormous global outcry for reform within the biggest sports governing body on the planet, FIFA, uh, we, we should lead that charge by demonstrating how you create transparency um, business ethics and and um, and uh, altruistic investment and, and other aspects of what a true nonprofit should be to grow the most inclusive and exciting sport on the planet and one of the most beautiful multicultural countries on the planet. We, we need to to lead. We need to shepherd and be a vanguard. And, and the desire to, to do that. But right now, if you look at the bylaws and if you look at the election process, uh, it, it, is a, it is a pretty uh, opaque and, and, and difficult to understand process and organization. And, and it just has to change. And, and I think a red flag was having a president that wasn't challenged ever. So, I mean, having elections with presidents that aren't challenged I mean, you, you read, read the, the, the New York Times or, or watch CNN, and you see countries that do that, and you find out why they do that. And it shouldn't be the case in, in our country with our sports governing bodies. And um, this election is a massive inflection point where there's a big group asking for actual reform, and there's a tiny group trying to create the optics of, of reform. And we'll be right back after this quick break. It's the new year, and lots of us are at least thinking about ways in which we can be happier and healthier. Maybe we'll take in some yoga, cook up better dinners, or perhaps try a standing desk, like Veridesk. Veridesk turns your desk into a standing desk, so you're more active than sitting all day. Standing more and sitting less can lead to more energy, less back pain, and more productivity. Check out Veridesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping both ways. See it for yourself at Veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I desk.com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stocking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. 
whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine. Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers. Another point you make is equality. And you point out how uh, uh, one of your main concerns is youth players who are being priced out of the game by financial barriers they encountered. And, and also... Uh, Players at all levels who feel kind of unsafe in locker rooms and the mistreatment of female athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, definitely. So, um, sport, I know everyone doesn't want their politics and sport mixed together. And, and I've been someone uh, outspoken on uh, trying to help everyone understand through friends of mine that are in the sport or watch the sport what Take a Knee was about and the social movement that they were trying to create there and other ways that sport, whether it be kick racism out, which was an uh, international attempt to, to uh, really tackle a, an ugly problem in stadiums across some European countries, uh, sport is the great equalizer, and, and, and it should be the most inclusive and, and tolerant place to be, but it, it isn't the case for myriad reasons. And locker rooms are sort of a different beast. I'll get to that in a moment. But, um, you know, we, we have to make sure that the greatest game on the planet is, is available and accessible for every person in our culture, regardless of socioeconomic status. It, we've turned it into a very rich sport. It is a remarkably expensive sport to play. And participation in our sport is lowest among low-income classes because there's a barrier to entry that's financial. And um, instead of understanding that and having the awareness that we've created this problem ourselves by, by uh, fueling market confusion that has parents paying incredible sums of money to get their kids into the game. Uh, There are two things that are happening. One, retention is terrible because that money and the importance and the stakes and parents putting that money forward, it's created a pressure where we're picking winners at a really young age. And kids in this country, unlike other countries, have a lot of great sports alternatives. And they're leaving our sport, 50% of them before the age of 10, to go play other sports or get out of sports altogether. Um, there was a study that was out recently that, that our participation is down 25%. So not only is it bad, but it's getting worse. So um, once they get in the system, that's one problem. But the biggest problem is that there are 88 million kids from 2 to 18, and we only have 4 million participating. And, and we brag about that number, and I, and I think that number needs to be doubled in the next 10 years. And, and it can be by uh, money spent, whether through our surplus or strategic partners, on grassroots initiatives, municipal architecture and design, to, to offer this game to low-income communities. And I've got several ideas for this. One low-income, high-impact idea is an initiative I call Over Under, which I, I created based off flying all around the world and seeing in South America. Every basketball court has a soccer goal under the hoop. And uh, in our inner-city communities that are f- filled with a multicultural, generational, multi-generational, dual national citizens, um, and even refugees that are coming here for opportunity, uh, that th- this game is the best way to afford them an opportunity in a community, but they don't have access to fields or a way to get in the game. So there's one great way where in New York City there's 600 basketball courts, but only about 50 soccer fields. $2,000 a basketball court, now you have 1,200 dual sport courts where you can play basketball and soccer. So it doesn't have to be these multi-million dollar projects to build fields, but that's not to say that those projects 
aren't important. Um, U.S. Soccer Foundation, led by Ed Foster Simeon, who's a basketball guy, uh, loves our game and understands where we need to focus our attention and is doing great work to raise, uh, whether it be through private investors and funders, um, through their philanthropy or government funding. They're trying to build fields all over these places where kids don't have access. So outside of the membership, that's how we help this thing grow. Now, once they get in the game, we have to be able to lower the cost of continuing up the pyramid. And so looking at the budget, we spent $3 million, and because we fired him and he had a contract, still $3 million on a coach we don't have anymore, a year on a coach that we fired. And we've spent $3 million over the past 10 years on financial aid. So, so it's clear that there's a remarkable disparity in terms of where investment dollars go in our organization. Well, I could tell you as someone who has a 10-year-old daughter who now has played soccer for three years and loves it, um, you know, it's to me, part of the problem seems to be uh, twofold, I guess, the way I would explain it, from what I've personally experienced. One is uh, the schools themselves, the public schools, and the folks on the Board of Education have, in my view, a much lower view uh, uh, or, or place sports athletics in general, much lower on the podium than they did when I went to school three centuries ago. Mm -hmm. And and I say this because I had to go in Glenrock, New Jersey, where I reside. I went to a Board of Ed meeting uh, several months ago where one of the topics was the Board of Ed wanted to drop girls, uh, I think I'm getting the sports right, I'm doing this from memory now, soccer, basketball, uh, you know, there were several sports. And, you know, uh, you know, they want to do this under the guise of perhaps getting more air conditioning in every classroom, even though school lets out, you know, in, in, in June. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't like that uh, years ago. The second thing is there's this, um, you know, when I played sports growing up, my, my, my games were baseball and soccer. We didn't really care if there were a couple of weeds on the field. Um, you know, the grass was fine. Um, we weren't looking for perfect fields or perfect uniforms or there wasn't all the breakup of, you know, you had the travel team and you have the team that doesn't travel. And, you know, like on my daughter's team uh, two years ago, they had a coach. And these girls, you know, at the time were like eight years old. They really need to learn the game, and they want to learn the game, but they get a coach for two games who then disappears because you have this upper echelon travel team that's going to play, you know, two towns over in Waldwick, and so their coach is gone, and somebody's filling in who really doesn't know anything about soccer, but who just happens to be really nice enough to do it so they can have the game. I, I think even at that level, the, the priorities not seem to be correct, and I, and I don't know what can be done about that. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and you know what? Um, the, 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 the organization that was affected by this before sport was the arts, right? That they started, they started with this budget cutting in the arts and, and thought, you know what? There are better ways to spend our municipal dollars or our investment in, in private schooling or, you know, whatever the case may be. And what they forget is take soccer, for instance, in the Latino community. The Latino community uh, has a high percentage of obesity in, in the youth, and, and it's a serious, serious health problem. 
Um, so uh, we're talking about billions of dollars of health costs that are created because of the lack of million-dollar investment and making sure that these kids can play a game that keeps them healthy. So uh, the, the architecture locally when it comes to municipalities, it, 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 it's because the Federation hasn't joined the efforts with a lot of grassroots movements that are trying to go into these communities and help help these people see it and, and go sit in town halls and, and, and city council meetings and try to help people understand that this isn't about winning a World Cup. And when our federation pushes a narrative like they, had, they did after Trinidad and Tobago and makes it a very elite professional idea, it, it makes it harder for these grassroots movements um, to get funding but also to get into these inner city communities and help impress upon them that you win World Cups by first starting at these school levels and making sure you have coaching education and facilities and all of these other things that are easy parts of the line item to, to take a pen through and say, let's move on to something else. We, we have to really impress upon them that, uh, you know, of all the kids that are going to be playing soccer, only, you know, 0.01% of them are going to go play in a World Cup. But, but if all of them play soccer for the rest of their life and we join the local efforts with then moving into an elite structure with U.S. youth soccer, U.S. club soccer, and say, and AYSO, and all these other groups that are in the space, we're not getting rid of them and we shouldn't want to or get rid of pay-to-play. It exists in every sport in every country, but if we don't start focusing on the entry level into the game, building a, and defining a clear pathway, regulating it and, and, and supplementing and subsidizing it with our funding and our and our strategic partners you know if we don't do that we're, we're really in jeopardy of 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 you know losing this game and, and never getting back on track but if we focus on that now and really integrate the efforts of everyone then then not only will kids play the game for the rest of their life as the bridge leads them to the adult game but but kids will stay fans they will stay coaches they will stay refs they will stay administrators for the rest of their life that's a, that's how you create a paradigm shift you can't wait for soccer to be the number one sport before you do these things. Soccer becomes the number one sport because you do these things. Yeah, I think that goes back to what you touched on when we first started chatting about sort of like the upside-down way they're trying to measure success, which yeah. is a perfect segue to uh, the third point, measuring progress that you want to address. Um, you know, I, th- I find this uh, most interesting also because, you know, I, I, I love numbers and, and love the different ways – things can be measured. Um, can you please highlight some of the ways you'd like to shift measuring progress and, and uh, to be able to capture actually whether or not we're doing the right things? Well, yeah. So let's again start down below. Um, so progress is on uh, how many more fields in these inner city communities have we built? How many more programs that are connecting, connected with the Boys and Girls Club and the YMCA and the church groups have we built? So you start, start at the bottom and measure that way. The next easiest way to measure is how has that impacted membership? So have we grown membership because of that? And then the next way to measure it is have we retained, have we improved retention of membership? So these are, these are, the, these are the metrics that tell us we're making progress. Um, in an elite way uh, about developing world-class athletes and keeping up with our competitors internationally, uh, we have to get rid of, of a meritocracy based on results. So we turned it into a winning atmosphere at a young level. And that's not how you develop talent. That's how you incentivize coaches to not put players on the field that maybe develop later or smaller and just need an extra, some extra attention. Uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's outliers showed us there is a lot of serendipity and luck about how you find success. 
Um, so, so we need to legislate for that and protect ourselves from believing that there's only a small group of kids that should make it to the top. Once you, once you do that, uh, you create mechanisms like solidarity payments and things that they do abroad to incentivize coaches to not only develop kids the right way, but then pass them up the pyramid. And then you can start seeing the numbers. Are we developing better men and women that can jump into the professional ranks? Is there more interest in watching them play soccer uh, which leads to more revenue and more investment back into the bottom of the pyramid. And does that help us internationally? Because if they're talking about the pyramid being the top and the priority being national teams, well, before Sunil Gulati, uh came into office, the U.S. men were ranked in the top ten. Their high, the high watermark for them was the 2002 World Cup with Bruce Arena in Seoul, Korea. The women won the World Cup in 1999, and I remember that incredible moment when Brandy scored that goal. Um, the gold medals and, and you know, the under-17 World Cup best performance, Landon Donovan, DeMarcus Beasley, the golden ball and silver ball, uh, all of this happened before this administration. So it's very difficult for them if we're going to only talk about the national team to say that the performance on the field has improved under their watch. And, and I can argue, I, I analyze games for a living, and I analyze players and coaches for a living, and I can tell you we're not progressing in that area. And I'll tell you that the women's side of the game is in jeopardy of being the next bubble to burst because their youth programs are struggling internationally. Because Title IX gave us a mechanism to focus on them before other countries did, and now other countries are starting to focus on their women's program and catching us. So um, that, that's how we, we have to start measuring progress, is understanding you win World Cups by focusing on grassroots movements. Um, and then we finally start being honest and open and have the humility we need at this moment to say we're getting a lot of things wrong, but that's not to say we aren't getting a lot of things right, too. And uh, when we admit our faults, it highlights our strengths. And so that's what we, we really, truly have to start doing right now, is just understanding there's a better way to do this. And uh, if we do it together then we can really start moving the needle in terms of progress and actually offer up the ambitious goal of winning a World Cup on the men's side one day to share in the success our women ha- have, have achieved. We can be realistic about that if, if we flip the pyramid and have the Federation live underneath it where the, the largest touch point within the membership is felt at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of what a member services organization is supposed to do. Does being a lousy soccer player with long hair in college give me uh, the privilege of offering one uh, one suggestion? Yes. Okay. I welcome it. So, so uh, it, being probably more of a libertarian than any other political ilk, I'm, I'm, I'm adverse to uh, excess bureaucracy or unnecessary bureaucracy. Um, and I know one of your ideas, if I have this correct, is to assemble an advisory board of former players, top coaches, and representatives from a variety of levels yeah. to make recommendations. Okay, so here's the Mike Ozanian suggestion. You know, I have a tremendous amount of interest, uh, uh, particularly uh, of folks in college who want to do internships at Forbes. You know, they, they love soccer, love writing about soccer. Um, you know, they know soccer the way I, when I was a kid, I knew baseball, you know, and, and mm-hmm. used to look at the box scores. Is there a way to implement a lot of these types of youngsters into any new strategy to, to sort of get, I mean, I, I know you talk to guys like David Beckham and Theo Henry, you know, and, and stars and, and, 
you know, a lot of your former uh, teammates and, and guys you played against uh, when, mm-hmm. in, in the ACC. But how about some of the – you mentioned grassroots. How about a lot of these younger kids? Because some of the – I mean, there's no shortage of ideas coming from these kids' mouths, you know. And yeah. uh, who better than to have someone like you and, and, and the uh, other players with the knowledge that you have to dissect these ideas and implement them? My dad worked for IBM for a long time, and, and, and the thing he said about the CEO he loved the most, and, and when they were really thriving, Big Blue, was the, it was a CEO that hired smarter people than him around him. Uh, we need a president with the courage to tackle these problems, the, the wisdom to find the right people to help them, but, but the humility to admit they're not the expert in all categories, and I absolutely am not. So I will have an advisory board that's, that's diverse and, and, and full of all these ideas. I will also create... Uh, think tanks that are best practices group that help us understand how they're doing in other sports or abroad or locally. But I also create a mentorship program to get uh, all of the young kids that aspire to contribute to growing this game in, in, in a program that can prepare them for either being on the staff uh, or, or helping us govern or helping us move this thing forward. Sounds great, Kyle. I wish you the best of luck. When will we have a decision on the results of the election? for February the pres- 10th. Best of luck to you, my friend, and I hope uh, uh, I hope you uh, are successful. And either way, I look forward to uh, you joining us again in the near future for another Sports Money podcast. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Can't get enough golf? Podcast One is the new home of Golflandia with Matthew Wiley. Every Monday, all season long, tune in to hear Matt talk predictions, tournament recaps, and interview guests from in and around the world of PGA and Euro Golf. He'll even talk business, branding, and family life. Because it all relates to golf. Download episodes of Golflandia every Monday exclusively on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. 
One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.